Crucifixion was an excruciating experience, and I think anybody who understands how crucifixion happens, that makes sense. But it was more than just the physical pain that someone who was crucified had to experience. It was also humiliating. I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified on a cross that was about, well, six feet or so above the ground. He towered over everybody who was there. But more than likely, he was actually crucified at eye level, only a few inches off the ground. The people who walked past could breathe on him. They were so close. He could see the mockers. He could hear their insults. He could look them in the eye. And in that moment, when he was not just experiencing physical pain, but also humiliation, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's a profound statement for a hundred reasons, but let me give you just a couple. I think we struggle with the idea that Jesus forgives certain people. For some of us, it's famous people, like warlords, dictators, those who use power to abuse others. For some of us, it's not somebody famous, it's someone we know all too well who did or said unspeakable things to us. And we see them sort of getting off in life, and it bugs us that Jesus would forgive somebody like that. If that's how we feel, then... We don't get Jesus in this moment. In fact, if that's how you feel, these words that Jesus said, they should be totally offensive to you because as people are literally killing God with no remorse and no understanding of what they're doing, Jesus pleads for their forgiveness. This is a profound thought and it's biblical, but it just wows me every time I think of it. God is so obsessed with trying to forgive everyone with relentlessly coming back to them with the invitation to repent, that that he allows bad people to keep going so he can be patient with them in order that they would repent. Like, think of the worst person you know. Somebody who, in your mind, probably doesn't deserve to be forgiven. If they're still living, it's because God wants to forgive them. He's letting them continue so that he can forgive them. And if we're honest, I think that bothers us, doesn't it? That God would let bad people continue so that he can forgive them? We feel that because deep down inside, we don't see ourselves the way God sees us. We like to think in terms of good people and bad people, but if we read the Bible and we're honest about it, there are no good people, there are only bad people, and we are some of them. And so if, if we're bothered by the idea that Jesus would relentlessly forgive, it's because, well, we don't really think we need to be all that forgiven. But for those of us who need a relentlessly forgiving Savior, because we know how relentlessly sinful we are, this is good news. For all the times that you said it'll be different next time, I'll never do that again. For all the times that you realize that even your good works are are stained by your selfish desires and your self-righteous need to be noticed, Jesus says, you're forgiven. 
for the worst thing that you've ever done that you maybe have never told anybody, you're forgiven. For the sins that you don't know you did and the sins that you'll never forget, you're forgiven. The first word. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Two men in the exact same situation with two pretty similar responses and two completely different outcomes. As Jesus was crucified, there was a thief on his right and a thief on his left, also being crucified with him. Two men in the exact same situation. And on paper, what they say actually seems pretty similar. You maybe know the response of the thief who ends up being saved in this moment. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But if we were to take the statement of the other thief out of context, it actually sounds pretty okay. Like if I told you, outside of this context, that there was somebody who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah and asked him to save him, you'd you'd think that's, that's a pretty good thing. Probably a pretty righteous person. That that other man, though, who did acknowledge, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us, you know, had a very different outcome than the other man. To one, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. To the other, he said nothing. So what gives? What's the difference? The man who was saved asked Jesus to save him from his sin. The other asked Jesus to save him from his circumstances. The difference between the two men was that the one who was saved realized that the fact that he was literally nailed to wood was his secondary problem. And there's something for us to learn in that. That it's so easy to think of my faith, my, my God, as a solver of my circumstances rather than a solver of my real problem. In the Lord's Prayer, there are seven petitions, seven things that we ask God for. Do you know how many of those seven deal with earthly things? One. And I know it's tax season and y'all love numbers. That's 14.3% of the Lord's Prayer. That's about earthly things. That means 85.7% of the Lord's Prayer is about anything but your circumstances. And yet how easy is it, right? to pray about pandemics and politics and inflation and housing costs and health and all the other things that we worry about in our life. And it's not that those things don't matter. Remember, 14.3% of the Lord's Prayer is about those things, but do we miss the point? Do we look at Jesus and see him as primarily somebody who solves our circumstantial issues? Or one to whom we look to solve the ultimate issue? If we're willing to acknowledge that we have nothing to offer God and that our life and our times and our choices and our steps are all in his hands anyways, then we can hear those words that Jesus said, remember, excuse me, today truly you will be with me in paradise. 
And so let me finish this thought with with a story. I'm not sure if it's actually true. It's probably legendary, but it's worth telling. During the Crusades, which are arguably the blackest black eye on the history of Christianity, uh, it it is said that the Knights Templar before they would go into battle, would be baptized by full immersion except for their hands. They would actually be baptized with their hands above their heads so their hands would not go under the water, symbolically saying that everything that I am is for you, Jesus, except what I'm about to do with my hands. And so let me ask you, in the circumstances of your life, is there something that you're holding above the water with Jesus? Is there something that you're not willing to let him baptize? Are you so worried about that relationship or that bank account, that situation at work, or what those people say or what that person in power is doing that you forget that it's all under Jesus' control anyways? Whatever that thing is, repent of it and realize that whatever it is, it comes secondary to having your sins forgiven. So repent and receive these words. Today, you are in paradise. You may not think that because, well, you're still walking around in this world filled with sin and corruption, but it is actually true for you. Today, your immortality has started. Your everlasting life has started. It's dark and it's dreary this side of heaven, but you will not die. You will continue and you will be with Jesus, starting now and forevermore. The second word. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's probably the easiest of the words to just skip over, but there's actually some really practical things to learn from the third word. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, he notices his mother standing there at the foot of the cross and his best friend, John. And he says to John, John, here is your mother, and to his mother Mary, here is your son. Three things I want us to see in this. First, I I know, because I talked to you, that some of you have strained family relationships. You're a son and you're getting increasingly irritated with your parents. You're a sister and you can't believe that your sister is acting the way that she is. You're a parent of young children and they have gotten to your final nerve or you're a parent of adult children and you kind of wish they would have turned out a little bit differently than they did. And it would be so easy to, to take this word of Jesus and see, say, look, Jesus was such a good son, right? He, he took care of his mom even when things were so bad for him. Try harder, do better, be better family members. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus was the perfect family member for you. 
For every time that you were unfaithful, for every time that you lacked love, for every time that you said or did things that you wish you could unsay or undo, Jesus put his work, his effort, his perfection in that place so that when Jesus, or excuse me, when God sees you, he sees the perfect son, the perfect sister, the perfect parent. The gospel is not do better, try harder. It's Jesus has done it all for you and given, to, given it to you freely. Second, why do you think Jesus gives his mother to John? I mean, we know from other texts in the Bible that Jesus actually had step-siblings or half-siblings, I guess you could call them. Between Mary and Joseph, we have three names of brothers, Joseph, Jude, and James. And it seems that Jesus also had a couple sisters. Why doesn't Jesus give his mother to them? Because they weren't there. And we know from the scriptures that Jesus' family actually didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. And so in that moment, rather than giving his mother to his unbelieving siblings, he gave his mother to his believing best friend. And that should teach us something. That the bond of believers is stronger than the bond of family. It sometimes is said blood is thicker than water. It's actually not true. The water of your baptism is thicker than blood. I am closer to any of you by our common taking of the Lord's Supper than I am to anybody who's biologically related to me. And that has implications for how we treat each other, how we're committed to each other, how we talk about each other. In this moment, Jesus shows us that 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 bond, it goes deep. But I think there's maybe a more specific application I want to make. And that's to also notice that there's one other person that should have been taking care of Mary who wasn't there. Joseph. Church history tells us that by this time, Joseph had died. Mary was a widow. And you know, if Cross of Life is your church home, that we actually have two ladies in our congregation who lost their husbands this year. And the fact that Jesus, in that moment, cared enough about his widowed mother to make sure that she was taken care of by his believing best friend should teach us something also. Not just about those two women, those sisters in Christ, who we ought to care about, but every one of us who does not have that strong family tie goes across faith as well. I mean, I'm looking out at people who I know are single or spiritually single. This is the place where you have a a stronger family than even your blood relatives. One last application of this. Do you think John was a little blindsided? Like, could there have been like a little bit of planning done in this moment? Jesus is like, John, I know it's a bad time, but can my mom live with you? And what is John thinking at that moment, right? Like, oh, we could have talked about this at the Last Supper, right? Like, you're putting me on the spot, Jesus. I think the reason Jesus does it at this moment is because he wants to show us that in the biggest things, he cares about the littlest things. Right in the moment where he is literally giving his life for the salvation of all people, experiencing the wrath of God, he cares enough to take care of this little thing. And there might be things in your life you think, these are insignificant things. If I told somebody, they'd be like, really? 
Or you think about how they fit into the grand scheme of everything that God is doing, as you know, like the omnipresent king of the universe. And you're like, it's, it's not that big of a deal. To Jesus it is. Because you know as well as I do, love is found in the little things. I'll tell you, I'm not particularly excited about making uh, make-believe cupcakes and giving them to stuffed animals or having one-year-olds play with my hair, but I do it because love is in the little things. And for Jesus, that's so true. Like the love that I can show to my little daughters, take that, multiply it by like a thousand, that's how Jesus cares for you. The third word. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. Then to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I want you for a moment to think about the uh, most excruciating physical pain you've ever gone through. Maybe it was childbirth, maybe it was a surgery, maybe it was a broken bone, maybe it was stepping on a Lego in the middle of the night. I'm just going to remember that moment for a moment. What is it? What does it feel like? Now I want you to think of the most excruciating, painful, relational moment you've ever experienced. Maybe it was when your best friend, who you trusted, betrayed you. It was when he cheated on you. It was when that person, who you thought was the one, left. It was when that family member said that thing that changed your relationship forever. How does that moment feel as you remember it? It's different, isn't it? Like when you think about excruciating physical pain, you think back and you probably think, yeah, that did hurt. But when you think back on excruciating relational pain, you kind of think, that still hurts. Psychologists will tell you this. Relational pain goes deeper than physical pain. So how much more when God is separated from God? When the son cries out for his father and his father is not there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the crazy thing about this moment is Jesus did it on purpose. <laughs> Whatever your excruciating relational pain was that you thought of, I'm guessing you didn't do it on purpose. But Jesus did. He went through that moment for you. The words he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are not just some guttural roar from a man in pain. They are actually a quote from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 actually continues after those words saying this, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, but the Lord rescue him. Jesus went through that on purpose for you. So that 
Instead of praying Psalm 22, you could pray Psalm 23. The order of the Psalms is no accident, and I think it's one of the most brilliant juxtapositions of Psalms when you see Psalm 22 next to Psalm 23. As Jesus cries out, God, why are you so far from me? Why have you forsaken me? I call out to you and you do not answer. He goes through that so that you could pray, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Jesus went through the valley of the shadow of death and God was not with him. So that God could be with you. The fourth word. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you want a little more? Imagine there's at least one thing in your life where you think to yourself, you wish you could have a little more of it. A little more time, a little more money, a little more success, a little more acknowledgement for all the work you put in, a few more years, a little more happiness, a little more certainty or peace. Every one of us feels that we could have a little bit more. It's the result of being a dependent creature in a corrupted and therefore insufficient world. We all have this sense that there's just not enough. The reality is that for most of those things, we actually probably could get more of them. But we realize that, in a sense, all of those things equal out to a zero-sum game. Like, I could get a better job, but I'm not willing to put in the effort. Or I could advance in the company, but I'm not willing to put in the hours. Or I could make more money, but that would mean that I have less time. Or I could have more friends, but that means I need to compromise my values. We all have this sense that we want more, but we really have no way of solving it because even if we wanted to solve it, we would find lack in another place in our life. But that wasn't the case with Jesus. Jesus was God Almighty in heaven, totally self-sufficient, had everything he could possibly need, all of the love, acknowledgement, riches, power, glory that you could ever want, and yet he gave it up. He was made in human likeness, conceived in the Virgin Mary's womb, to experience a life just like you and I experience, a life of insufficiency. When he says on the cross, I am thirsty, it wasn't the first time he lacked things. There were moments when he was tired, moments when he was hungry, moments when he realized the brokenness of the people around him. And yet he chose to be in that lack, in that insufficiency, in that desire for you so that you could experience life without lack, without want, without desire. When Jesus cries out on the cross, I am thirsty, the skies should have ripped open and dropped rain on him so he could drink. The the rivers should have run up the hills to get to him. Every king should have brought out his finest china to serve the God of the universe a drink, and yet none of that happened because Jesus needed to experience exactly what you experienced to absorb it into himself 
so he could promise you life without that. And once you realize that, you actually find out that all those things that you want, you don't want them that badly. You have Jesus. Sure, you could make more money, but you have the promise of the riches of heaven. You could have more success, but you've already got a status of perfectly loved son or daughter in Jesus. You could have a little bit more acknowledgement from other people, but the God of the universe already calls you his son or daughter. When Jesus cries out, I am thirsty, he absorbs all of that need, all of that want, all of that sense that I need to do enough, drum up enough effort in order to get it done here in this world and says, I will absorb all of it for you. The fifth word. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So if you don't mind my asking, are you killing it at life? Or is life killing you? I think the answer to that question, if we're honest, is it's complicated. Or it depends on the day. There are some days when we feel like we're killing it. Our waistline is getting smaller, our to-do list is getting shorter, our bank account is getting bigger. We feel like we're killing it. And then there are the other days. The days where you feel like life is killing you. When all the things you set out to do, you can't even scratch the surface of. All the things you thought you could be, you're nowhere near. What if there was another option, though? Like, what if I could offer you freedom from the pressure to always have to be killing it and freedom from the guilt of realizing that you don't? It's in the sixth word. It is finished. I think when we hear those words, we very quickly want to qualify them. It is finished, but I mean, you've got you to keep doing some things. But Jesus doesn't qualify it. It is finished, he says. Which I, I looked it up in the original Greek. It means it is finished. And if some days you feel the pressure to have to kill it, it's because you don't believe that. You believe that it's not finished that you got to pull it off. That if you don't put in the hours or put in the effort or willing to make the sacrifices, then you're not really worthwhile, that you're not justified in your own existence. And if you ever feel like life is killing you, it's because you don't believe it is finished. You believe that because of all the times that you've fallen short, all the times that you can't live up, that you're not worth it, that you're not justified in your existence. But that's not what Jesus says. He says it is finished. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you live your life under a banner that reads, it is finished. Every action that you take cannot change your status before Jesus. You are freely and fully forgiven. You are completely and utterly loved. And nothing can take you out of Jesus' hand. If you applied that to every moment of your life, you would have a peace that goes beyond understanding. So let's try it for a moment. Just for this moment, let's believe it is finished. Let's exhale. Seriously, do it with me. You're free. There's nothing left to do.
It is finished. The sixth word. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's pretty rare to find a child who likes going to bed. I mean, I'm sure there are some scenarios where they've been playing outside all day and they get really tired and all they want to do is sleep. But uh, at least if my experience is true, it's pretty rare to find a kid who likes going to bed. If you put yourself in their shoes, especially if they're particularly young, it kind of makes sense. They're really experienced with sleep yet. To them, they've been playing and having fun and doing everything that they possibly can, and all of a sudden, mom's like, we're going to shut this thing down. And they're like, wait, that's it? Is this the end? Although I found that, that there is one thing that, that helps kids get through uh, difficult sleeping. It's the presence of a parent. Whether it's the mother who's cradling her one-year-old or the father who snuggles up with his toddler, the presence of a parent makes it easy for children to fall asleep. Kids, when they grow up, they, of course, learn that sleep is awesome. By the time we're teenagers, we can't do anything but sleep, it seems. And for those of you who are past your teenage years, you're probably wishing I could sleep a little bit more. In fact, your kind of happy service is at 2 o'clock, so you can get to bed earlier tonight. That's because we realize after enough years of falling asleep, falling asleep is pretty great. I mean, you wake up rejuvenated, you have more energy. When you're young, you don't always know that. You don't know that going to sleep is actually going to help you grow and help you learn and help your brain function and give you more energy to play tomorrow. But aren't we the same way with death? The Bible goes out of its way to actually not use the word death when talking about the death of a Christian. It talks about it as sleep. And that's because for a Christian, sleep is, or death is just like sleep. You go down, but you're going to get up. And when you get back up, you're going to be rejuvenated, you're going to be restored. In fact, we believe you are going to be remade into a perfect body. So what are we afraid of? Well, we don't have the experience with it, of course, but we do have one thing, the presence of a parent. A parent who we know, when we fall asleep in our grave, we will fall right into his arms. And so we can pray like Jesus did in the seventh word, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Whether death seems like it's probably pretty near for you, or if it seems like it's decades in the future, you can pray with Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you can know that even though you've never experienced death, it's actually a really good thing. And on the other side, is something even better. Excuse me, the seventh word. It was now about noon, And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. 